Well, can I add to the welcome that um, Colin gave you at the beginning? It's good to see you all here this evening. This is Dries evening. We've begun two new series in Jeremiah in the mornings. And last week we began this new series in Luke's Gospel on Sunday evenings. And I hope you'll be able to follow that through and follow the themes uh, through. But before we come to that, let's just pray and ask God to help us to understand his word and this gospel account that was written for our benefit. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have four accounts of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, your son. As we focus again on what you inspired Luke to write so carefully and accurately, we pray we'll understand what you want to say to us through this gospel account. Help us to appreciate again maybe some for the first time, who Jesus really is, and to come and bow down in worship before him, the one whom you've declared to be Lord of all. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, let me begin with a true story. One, I think, looking at my records, and I do keep close records, I've used before in this pulpit, but... Many of you won't have been there, and if you were, I hope you'll excuse me, because it's so particularly relevant to the passage we're going to look at together in a few moments. And it's a true story related to something close to my heart, the work of Bible translation, and a particular incident that occurred some years ago. So let me tell it as I understand it, and I think you'll understand why I'm using it. It had taken the team involved, a couple of people, several years of painstaking linguistic research and analysis before they were finally ready to begin translating the Gospel of Luke into the language of the preliterate people that they were working with way out in a jungle village. Each day, with the help of local people, they would translate a section from Luke's Gospel. Just a few verses each day. And each evening they would gather the village together and read out what they translated to gauge the reaction of the local people who spoke this language, written down for the first time. And so they translated this story, which Luke calls, and we have called in the title for our series, Good News of Great Joy for All People. Well, the response of the people could hardly be described when they heard it as great joy. Mild interest might be more accurate. But the translators continued day after day, section by section, culminating finally in the events surrounding the death of Jesus and his resurrection. The people continued to listen politely. But there was certainly no commitment on the part of any of them to follow the Jesus they've been hearing about. Finally, the day came when the gospel was finished. The last section translated. But not quite. There was one section they hadn't bothered with. Way back in the early part, in Luke chapter 3. Now, turn with it to me, and you'll maybe understand why they hadn't bothered translating it. You'll find it, on page 1030. I want you to imagine that you're there in the village. 
and you're hearing this for the first time. Verse 21, they translated the first couple of verses. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. They translated that way, way back at the beginning. But they hadn't bothered with the genealogy that followed. After all, what is it? It's a list, if you want to count, of 78 Hebrew names. Still, the translators did believe in theory at least that all scripture is inspired by God. And it wasn't difficult to translate. All you need to do is just adapt the names so they fit in with the sound system of the language in question. And so they translated this last section, which we'll read together. And I've no doubt that many of you have been to church for years and never heard this read. Not least because you've got to pronounce all the names. Here we go. He, that is Jesus, was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Marth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semine, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Rasa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosan, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattathar, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Amen. Thank you. And when they read it, for the first time in this language, the response of the people was nothing short of astounding. Excitement, animated discussion, questions followed. And the reason, the people suddenly realized that the Jesus they had been hearing about was not a fictional figure such as the mythical heroes who featured in their own stories. No, he was a real person whose actual ancestry could be traced back over many generations, even to the beginning of time. In a culture which valued ancestors, 
and preserved and treasured their own genealogies, it was the turning point at which many of the people turned to Christ and became his followers. And that's one of the reasons why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke includes this genealogy in his Gospel account. I'm going to be recommending books to read if you want to get books to read on Luke to follow the series. The Tyndale New Testament commentary on Luke by Leon Morris is a good start. This is what he writes. That the genealogy is included at all shows Jesus to be a real man, not a demigod like those in Greek and Roman mythology who were the first readers of this gospel. So as Luke intended, his introduction to the public ministry of Jesus affirms his uniqueness, that he is both fully human and fully divine. In the words of the title I've chosen for this message this evening, Jesus is the man who is God. I almost called it the God who is man. But both apply. And if you want a verse from this section that summarizes what we're going to think about, you'll find it in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. The son of Adam, the son of God. The son of Adam, the son of God. Both phrases describe who Jesus is. So look at them together with me. And then at the end we're going to respond with some songs of praise and prayer as we think about who this person is that we worship, Jesus Christ. First of all, Jesus, the son of Adam. If you know the gospel accounts well, the four gospels, there are actually two genealogies of the life of Jesus. Uh, One here in Luke, and then one with which Matthew begins his gospel. And if you compare the two genealogies together, there are some marked similarities, but there are also some striking differences, not least in two different names for the father of Joseph. Here in Luke, he's described as being called Heli, or Eli. Uh, in, In Matthew, he's called Jacob. Now, much ink has been spilt, and probably whole forests have been felled to make the paper to write all the articles and reports and try and explain the discrepancy between these two accounts. So I'm not going to bore you for another three hours by rehearsing all, this, all the story. If, you, if you're interested in that kind of thing, speak to me afterwards, and I'll send you something which will send you to bed any night if you can't sleep well. Uh, the most popular suggestion is that Matthew traces the descent of Jesus through Joseph, his legal line, in the eyes of the law of the day, although it wasn't his proper father, while Luke follows the line of Mary, his birth line. Uh, That's not without its difficulties. And none of the theories are. However, what I do want to focus on is what is absolutely clear when you make a comparison between these two genealogies. If you look at Matthew's account in Matthew 1, Matthew goes from Abraham to Jesus because Matthew is a gospel written with a Jewish audience in mind Luke however as we've seen in this account goes from Jesus right back in time beyond Abraham to Adam because Luke is a gospel that is written for a Gentile non-Jewish audience in other words to pick up on our theme 
in Luke's Gospel, the story of Jesus is indeed good news for all people, not just Jews. And so he begins by making this point, by giving us this genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus is good news for all people. Yes, it is good news for Jews. The ancestry of Jesus places him in the royal line through David, Israel's greatest king. Uh, Numerous prophecies foretold that the Messiah would be of kingly descent and heir in David's line, as we just sang. And further back to the royal house of Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. So, for example, and you read these often at Christmas time, um, Isaiah famously prophesied about the coming king. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Isaiah 11 verse 1. Jesse, of course, you now know from the genealogy, was the father of David. And Jeremiah, that we've been studying on Sunday mornings, makes the same point more explicitly. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely, and do what is just and right in the land. And so Luke is making this point. Jesus has the right pedigree, if I can put it in those terms. He has the right ancestry. He fulfills all the requirements, going back to the royal line of David and the kings who followed him. But not only that, he goes even further back. And places Jesus in the promised line through Abraham. Abraham, of course, was the father of the nation of Israel. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham, an agreement. And he made promises to Abraham and his descendants. Genesis 12, very important verses, verses 2 and 3. The Lord said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the ancestry of Jesus places him right back there as well. To Abraham. And the promises that he made through Abraham is that his seed, through his seed, through his descendants, all nations on earth, all ethnic groups would be blessed. And Luke is making this point. Jesus is fulfilling all these promises now. And to highlight that, Luke then goes even further than Matthew and he goes right back to the beginning and places the ancestry of Jesus in the human line through Adam. You see, Jesus is fully human. He will fulfill the very first promise or prophecy in the Bible. You know what the first promise in the Bible was? The first prophecy? Right back when our first parents sinned, God made a promise that he would put things right. He spoke to the serpent the tempter, the devil in the form of a serpent, and he said, because you've done this, you'll be cursed. And then God says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his feet. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Now, Jesus is that offspring of Eve, born of a woman, a second Adam, who will succeed where the first Adam failed. And the benefits of all that Jesus did are available, and the only qualification is that you can trace your ancestry back to Adam. Now, genealogies are actually increasingly popular these days, aren't they? You know, you can go to the records, you can look at the internet, you can trace where your family records go back. So what I want to say to you, if you're into genealogies, providing you can trace your genealogy back to Adam, you're okay. It's a long way back. We're all human beings, as far as I can see, looking around, Pretty sure about that. 
And Luke is assuring us, he writes this gospel to say to us, this is not just something Jewish. And to our generation, this is not some kind of Western religion. This is for all people. If you want a more technical commentary on Luke, Howard Marshall, who operated out of Aberdeen, the New International Greek New Testament commentary, you don't really need to know Greek to read it, because he explains all the Greek as well. He writes this, The point of this genealogy is to show that Jesus has his place in the human race created by God. We may be sure that the carrying back of the genealogy to Adam is meant to stress the universal significance of Jesus for the whole of the human race, not merely the seed of Abraham. Now, I guess this is pretty passe to most of us, because we're used to it. But it really is dynamite when Luke writes this. And we shouldn't neglect how significant this is. If this were not the case, we would not be here this evening. This building would never have been erected. The churches that you see around us, Christian Britain, whatever we mean by that, and our heritage and history, would never have come into being. The Christian faith would have been restricted to some small Jewish sect instead of a message that is good news of great joy for all people. That's why the gospel is good news for all people, for Jews and Gentiles. The Apostle Paul puts it famously at the beginning of his great letter to the Romans where he lays out the whole truth of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the Gentile. So I need to stop and tell you, whoever you are, whatever your origin, the good news of Jesus is for you. You are included in. If you believe, the only entrance requirement is simple faith in Jesus Christ. Turning from your rebellion against God, putting your faith in Him. That is the good news of the Gospel. That's why we're here. That's why I'm, <clears throat> with all my limitations, and Colin, and all of us who are preaching this pulpit, that's why we're preaching the Gospel. Because it's God's power to save people who believe. And if this evening you've already trusted in Christ, I just hope in some way the, the impact of this comes home afresh to you. That you should be thankful that Luke wrote this genealogy because it includes us all in. That Jesus is the Son of Adam. And we should be thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to have an opportunity uh, in a few moments when I finish to, to express our gratitude to God in song once more and prayer. That in the words that we started with, He willingly took on our humanity. That He took the nature of a servant. He humbled Himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Fully human. And that is all the more remarkable because He's not only the Son of Adam. Secondly, the other side, He is also the Son of God. Now look again at the passage in front of us. Luke's account of the public ministry of Jesus begins, uh, Luke alone tells us this detail, when Jesus was around the age of 30. Uh, for the Jews, 30 was the age of full maturity for a man. So if you're not 30 yet, young man, you've got some way to go yet. Some of us just reached double that, so probably double blessing here, but... Uh, 30 was the age of maturity. If you read the Old Testament law, a Levite, a priest who served the Lord, didn't begin his service in the temple till he was 30 years old. If you know your Bible really well, 
you'll know that Joseph became Prime Minister of Egypt when he was 30, and that David finally assumed the throne when Saul was killed at the age of 30. And the first public act of his ministry is to be baptised. Luke says when all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. Uh, Last week, if you were here, Colin pointed out what a shocking message it was to tell Jews that they needed to be baptised. Because baptism in water was restricted in those days. It was for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So to say to a Jew, you need to be baptised, was not a very popular message. It was a shocking message. But how much more shocking that the one who is truly the Son of God should choose to be baptised as well. I say in passing, uh, if Jesus was prepared to do that, I can never understand why we're so embarrassed sometimes and reluctant to be baptized ourselves, to follow in his footsteps, to identify with him. Now, Jesus is not baptized because he's a sinner. Uh, But Leon Morris puts it this way, at the outset of his ministry, he publicly identified himself with the sinners he came to save. But if you look at verses 21 and 22, it doesn't come out very well in the English, uh, and uh, if you're into grammar, you can, you can check this back afterwards. But in actual fact, all the bit about baptism is, is sort of um, just leading up to the main point, which is not the baptism. The focus is on what follows. Uh, the background is to the supernatural events that are about to occur. Which declare to all, and explicitly to Jesus, if he wasn't fully aware of it at this point, that he is not only... An ordinary man, but he is the Son of God. Let me summarize it, and then I'll look at each point separately, very briefly. After his baptism, look what it says. As Jesus is praying, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends, the Father speaks. Uh, Let's try and unpack each of these one at a time. After his baptism, as Jesus is praying. As we go through Luke's Gospel, we'll see certain emphases that Luke has in his Gospel. Luke is very pro-women. And we'll see that theme coming out. He is also very strong on the prayer life of Jesus. We learn more about the prayer life of Jesus through Luke than the other three Gospels. It's a natural part of his relationship with God, but particularly Luke records that Jesus prays at key points in his life. Because he'll need to stay on track at those points and not be diverted from the goal which the Father has laid out for him. So Luke tells us that Jesus prays right at the beginning of his ministry when the pressure and popular acclaim of the crowds threatens to overwhelm him. Luke 5, 15 and 16. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him, be healed of their sicknesses, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. When Jesus was about to make a key decision to appoint his twelve disciples, he prayed. On one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. He spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he designated as apostles. It's after prayer that he raises the key issue with his followers about his real identity. Uh, Luke 9:18. Once when Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? He takes three chosen disciples with him up a mountainside up to the top, where his glory will be revealed. Luke 9, 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him, went upon a mountain to pray, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And as you know, he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. 
He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And his final words from the cross are a final prayer to his Father. Luke 23:46. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he'd said this, he breathed his last. His life from beginning to end was a life of prayer, which is a great challenge to all of us. If he needed to pray like this, how much more should we? In fact, the one thing the disciples on record asked Jesus to teach them was how to pray. Luke 11, 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. At every crucial moment in his life, we're going to see that Jesus is one who prays. And so at this crucial beginning of his ministry, after he's been baptized, he is praying. And it's not surprising that a reply comes from heaven. Luke records that as Jesus is praying, the heavens open. As he was praying, heaven was opened. Uh, again, if you know the Old Testament prophets, seven centuries before, Isaiah the prophet had prayed, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. And through all the years, the people of Israel, the godly people of Israel, had prayed that God would rend the heavens, that he would intervene and do something. But the heavens seem like brass. But when Jesus prays at this crucial point in human history, the ancient prayers at last answered. The ancient promises are about to be fulfilled. The heavens open, a sign that God is about to intervene. He's about to act. He's about to speak. As Jesus is praying, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. No one's exactly sure what the significance of the dove really means. There's no tradition in Jewish thought that the dove is associated with the Holy Spirit. Some people think it's a reference back. You remember when Noah, after the flood, Noah on the ark sent out a dove and it brought back the message that it was safe to return and a new world began. It's a sign of new life. Whatever the case, most people now associate the dove with peace. What is clear, it signifies that he's sent to the Holy Spirit. And notice the full title upon Jesus. Yes, he was born of the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. But now the Holy Spirit is given in fresh and full measure to equip him for the task that lies before him. Again, the prophets had promised that this would happen. Again, readings we read at Christmas time. Isaiah 11. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and power. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And later in Isaiah we read God's own word to his servant. Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And he will bring justice to the nations. And now the father speaks similar words to his son Jesus. Following his baptism the father speaks. A voice from heaven said, You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now the voice is clearly that of a father speaking to his son. He addresses him as son. This doesn't mean, as some people have suggested, that at this point in his career Jesus was adopted into God's family. He was and is and since eternity has been the eternal son of God. But on this day, as he commits himself to the task that lies ahead of him, and signifies his identification with sinners by being baptized, the Father speaks his words of affirmation, of love, and of approval. Very significant words. Literally, my son, the beloved. 
Stressing the unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father. My only son I love. Again, if you know the Old Testament, there are echoes here right back to the story of Abraham again. Remember when Abraham was told by God, Genesis 22, to offer his son as a sacrifice, the Lord said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. You remember the story that the knife in Abraham's hand is stayed by God, who provides a ram, an animal instead. But Jesus, the Father's only beloved Son, will be the sacrifice, as John the Baptist has said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he willingly commits himself to this, the Son of Adam, the Son of God. Howard Marshall comments helpfully again. The fact that the genealogy is carried back to Adam as the Son of God may perhaps point to a contrast between this disobedient Son of God and the obedient Son of God, Jesus. No wonder then the Father speaks these words of love, you are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Here is the first step that will lead eventually to the cross and beyond it and even beyond the grave. Now you may say, well, this is kind of heavy stuff. And I realize there's a, there's a, but there are very important theological truths here. If you get this wrong, you'll get all sorts of other things wrong. It's important to know that Jesus is indeed fully man and fully God. I could spend the rest of the evening telling you all the heresies that have occurred in church history in the past because people got these points wrong. Great church councils and debates on it. And will you notice finally here uh, that although the term the Trinity was a word that was coined later to explain the relationship. Did you notice in this story the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in salvation? God's plan of salvation, the Son's obedience, the Spirit's anointing, the Father's affirmation. Let me just say something in conclusion. Almost come to the end. I doubt whether many of you interested to do a poll on this, but how many, many of you became Christians through reading this genealogy? Although, who knows this evening, it may be the point for you where you realize who Jesus really is. It's such a stumbling block to many people. The uniqueness of Jesus above all other religious figures. He is the divine Son of God who became man. I would be surprised if your favorite verse is somewhere in that genealogy. Oh yeah, my favourite verse, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram. Well, I, I kind of doubt it somehow. <laughs> but what I hope, and my purpose in focusing on this, is this, is this is Luke's message for us this evening. The genealogy of Jesus, when you read it, should prompt you to praise God and to praise His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to sing in a moment, Meekness and Majesty... Manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Bow down in worship, for this is your God. I hope this evening you can affirm that you're putting your trust, your dependence in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed the man who is God, and will come in worship and praise him. Let's um, sing that together, shall we? You'll find it on Mission Praise.